Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm having a tough week, and I just want to be honest that I don't, I just don't feel good. <laughs> um, so Friday this week is the anniversary of my daughter Elizabeth's passing. If you don't know much about me or, or our story, I uh, encourage you to listen to some of the earlier episodes. Also, um, you can read my book, Butterfly and Second Chances. It's uh, the story of our life together. Elizabeth's passing was traumatic and beautiful all at the same time. So I'm struggling. It's been nine years struggling with an issue that my daughter is facing, my daughter Caroline. I can't go into it, but if you are inclined, my audience, would you pray for our family today? We could really use it. So I'm actually so grateful to be presenting to you Jen Frazier, who um, wrote all about the bullied brain. This is something that I really needed right now in my life. Um, let me tell you about her. So Jennifer Frazier is a PhD. She is a physical, emotional, and sexual abuse survivor at the hands of high school teachers along with many other victims in her school in Vancouver. Um, she's mom, she has two grown up sons and she lives in Victoria, BC uh, with her, she says, high maintenance standard poodle. And when she was teaching at a school, she had students who were reporting being emotionally and physically abused at the school that she was teaching at. And she, fiercely advocated for them and ultimately had to resign in protest because like way too often, these administrators covered up the abuse. Um, and she writes blog stories about it, about, I, I think it's titled, How I Became an Unlikely Whistleblower. She writes a regular blog for Psychology Today. And she's an award-winning educator her latest book is called The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. <laughs> She's also a poet, which is really awesome and um, has won some poetry contests or, or um, come in as finalists. And the things that we talked about in this episode are how bullying is normalized in society from the playground right up to the top levels of power. There was a political announcement this week in our country that um, our former president Trump is, who is known for being a bully. And frankly, it doesn't matter what your political leanings are, it's hard to deny that. So from the playground right up to the top levels of power, bullying is normalized. But she talks about how bullying and abuse can harm brains, 
in serious ways. And you can't see that damage on brain scans. But the exciting thing is that she's discussing how the brain is adept at repairing itself and recovering if you follow evidence-based practices that she talks about in this episode and especially in her book. That's great news, especially for me, especially for our family this week. So um, I really hope that this podcast episode helps you somewhere along in your life that it meets you where you are. Just about every person has had a bullying experience or knows someone who has. And I encourage you so highly to check out her um her Facebook page, her LinkedIn, her Twitter, her Instagram. It's at Bully Brain. And also to go to our website, bullybrain.com. This is a fascinating subject. And I truly have hope that the trauma that me and my family have been through that we're going through this week will be able to be repaired and that we will come through to the other side of it. Thank you so much, my audience, for being here. I have so much gratitude for you. If you like what you're hearing, if you appreciate the episodes that we're putting out for you, please share Please go on social and talk about us, Parenting Impossible. And please, please rate and review us. It's incredibly helpful to get this very much needed information and support out to people who could use it. Thank you again. Today on the show, we're talking with Jennifer Frazier, who is a PhD and she has really reframed something for me that I, it's a topic that is so near and dear to my heart and to m- many of us in the disability community. Today, we're going to talk about bullying, but we're going to talk about it, I think, a little differently. We're going to talk about it in the way that it impacts your brain, that bullying and abuse can actually rewire your brain. And the hopeful part of all of this is that, as Jennifer tells us, we can wire it back. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm super excited to talk about this. Thanks for having me, Annette. I'm super excited to be on your podcast. So you have such a poignant story about, you know, your own life and how that led you to work on this so important issue. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, working on the book led me to uncover a bit of my own history that I'd sort of put away, I'd put in a box. And um, so that became really quite fascinating for me. And I think it's helped me frame this in a way where I said to myself, you know, I've been abused. These things have happened to me. If I can put myself on a track towards healing and repairing and restoring my brain, because I was doing a deep dive at this point into the brain science, I thought, this is what readers need to know. Everybody needs to know this. And and it's missing information. I mean, we live in a society where essentially we ignore our brains. We're not taught about it in school. We feel intimidated by it. Our health professionals don't share information with us about our brains. Unless you have a huge problem that's 
that's glaringly apparent, you're unlikely to ever get a brain scan or have anyone talk to you about brain health. So that's when I jumped into the gap. Wow. And so you're a four-time author and your latest book is what we're talking about today, The Bullied Brain. Heal your scars and restore your health. I love it. So as you started writing the book, you, you said you were uncovering some things about your own journey. And can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, what, uh, I'm going to give it to you in three stages. So the impetus to the book, what started me down the path 10 years ago of studying bullying as a phenomenon, like, why does it happen? I wasn't looking at child populations. And I don't think that's how we're ever going to solve any problems in humanity by looking at our children. So I looked at the adults. I was like, why do adults bully? Why do they role model it to children? Why do they tell children not to do it? Why, when they have an abusive individual in their organization, do they cover up and re-victimize whomever's come forward? I mean, it's just a textbook response. We see it every single day. So I was wondering, why does this happen? And, you know, with a PhD, my my PhD is in comparative literature. And what we're trained to do is take different discourses that normally are kept in silos, and we throw them into the arena together and see how it changes the conversation. So I took science and I put it into the arena with bullying and abuse to see what I could find out. And what I found out was shocking. So the reason why I cared about it in the first place was I was teaching at a school and I was hearing directly from students that they were being bullied in a terrible way. They were, they were being called homophobic slurs, these teenage boys. Um, one boy in particular was being grabbed repeatedly for um, scenes of public shaming and he would try and get away from the yelling and the kind of rhetorical questions about how worthless he was. And he would uh, be grabbed and held in for more while, you know, everyone stood around and watched this sort of thing. And um, lots of blocking of opportunities and just threatening aggressive behaviors. And the reason why it completely shocked me was it wasn't students doing it to other students. It was teachers doing it to students. And the students were reporting this. And they were, I ended up taking eight testimonies directly from students. So I heard in detail about how they were being treated by these teachers behind closed doors. So I knew these teachers, they were my colleagues. You would think they were the most normal people in the world. You would never have suspected in a million years that when the doors closed, they transformed into these bullying individuals. So now that I've done a ton of research, this is textbook. This is exactly yeah. what they do. So anyhow, it became a huge issue, big blow up. It was national news. It was on the investigative journalism and TV. I mean, right. everything. But basically, the system didn't change. The teachers weren't held accountable. The students were re-victimized. The government did nothing. It was just same old, same old. And at that and- point... Jennifer, it was more than just the students that were being bullied. It was the students that were trying to defend them as well and reporting this. And what they learned from this was it didn't do any good to report it. So maybe next time I don't get involved. Oh, absolutely. No, I, it was remarkable to see how the system, personally, I felt the same thing. We're told from the very kindergarten, when you see bullying, you go and tell a teacher. And all the way up, we're told as adults, you know, ethics, responsibilities, you have to speak up, you know, be an upstander, we tell our children. Well, none of that's true in the real world. In the real world, you'd be smart to be quiet, look the other way and protect your livelihood and do what the employer tells you to do and just stay in the in-group. Really what the brain doesn't want 
is to be cast out. And when you speak up and you call abuse for what it is, you get cast out often. So that's what happened to me. So I resigned in protest from this school and I went to another school. And in this school, I just kept my head down, wanted to go about my business, you know, protect myself and my family. And in my third year, a student came up to me and said she was being sexually harassed by a teacher. And I think the reason she came to me was I appeared to the students as this big defender. I was the teacher that was going to speak up for their rights to Mm -hmm. rights to go to school and not be abused by educators. And anyhow, this morphed into a very large event as well. And so these were all the different things happening in my life that motivated me to understand we have a broken system. Human beings are amazing at change and adaptation and innovation. And I truly believe we can fix our broken system and become much healthier. And the key to the whole thing is the brain science. Okay. So fascinating. Let's jump into that brain science. So if bullying is so normalized, how does the science... Uh, this is a big question. I'm not going to ask that big question. Let's start <laughs> smaller than that. Um, but we do agree that it is normalized based on you know what you just said and all of our experiences. So, so let's start small and think about just explain to us how the brain gets rewired as the bullying and abuse go on in the in the head of the abused person or the bullied person, the recipient of the behavior? I'm actually, okay, yeah, let's start with that. That's a really good question. So basically imagine that you are bullying me. What's happening is you and I meet every day and we have this meeting. And every day I know that you're going to put me down. You're going to humiliate me. You're going to make fun of me in front of the our other colleagues. Um, you're going to threaten my position at work. You might take my work and pass it off as your own. Uh, Everything is kind of designed to make me not belong, to make me feel humiliated, to block me from opportunities, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So within my brain, what's happening is I'm starting to develop lots of anxious feelings as the day goes on. I I know I'm meeting with you at three o'clock. So starting at about 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm starting to feel a lot of anxiety in my body and in my brain. And what the The brain interprets that as a threat. And the brain, despite being so remarkably sophisticated, when the brain thinks there's a threat, it thinks there's a predator. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you activate the sympathetic nervous system, unbeknownst to you. It happens without your decision-making process. It's getting messages from your body and messages from your brain as you think about this bullying that's about to happen every single day at three o'clock and you're communicating to the brain that there's a predator and you're in danger. So it Mm -hmm. goes into overdrive. It starts pumping up adrenaline and releasing cortisol. Now, cortisol is a fabulous stress hormone designed to help you fight, fight, flight, or flee or freeze. Oh my goodness. Why can't I say that? (laughs) Basically it's, it's wants you to fight the predator. It wants you to run away from the predator or right freeze like a rabbit would. So the predator doesn't see you. Right. And that requires cortisol and all kinds of changes happen in your body. Your blood pressure goes up, your heartbeat's going faster. It's pumping blood everywhere. Oxygenated blood's going up into your brains to sharpen your focus. All kinds of changes are happening. And 
if in and fact it's all automatic, right? I mean, all automatic, all automatic. Okay. So automatic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system. And all this happens. You're not aware of it. All you know is you don't feel great. You feel mm -hmm. uncomfortable. You feel anxious and you keep communicating that to your brain as you're doing your work and you're thinking about this humiliation you're going to face. Yeah. Now, in the 21st century, when we are faced with constant stresses, it could be the news we're watching. It could be a scary movie. It could be an angry person in our home. It could be financial stress. All of those different things cause anxiety, cause worry, cause cortisol to pump up. And unless we learn strategies to manage this automatic system within ourselves, yeah, we're yeah. susceptible to it. And now the cortisol pumping up into the brain to put it in, like without getting into the science in depth, that's all in the book. But basically what's happening is it dismantles brain architecture. It does significant harm to the brain. It's not yeah. healthy. It's not normal. The brain was not designed to have these, this constant bathing of cortisol and neither was the body. It's extremely mm -hmm. bad for your health. So as they know in research, children that grow up with adversity, um, they are much more likely to have chronic health issues and they right. are much more likely to have a shortened lifespan. And the reason being is because they're in this constant state of anxiety, this constant um, toxic stress in which they live badly impacts their body and brain. And really, this is the key. What we want to do is keep our brains healthy and safe. That's the priority. Every single day at home, mm -hmm. every single day in sports, in school, in church, you want the brain to feel safe. Once the brain feels safe, it can do all kinds of things learning, problem-solving, creativity, social-emotional relationships. But if I it see. does not feel safe, then harm is happening to the brain, and it's serious harm. Yeah, that's the hierarchy of needs, right? I mean, that's basic stuff. So um, I did an interview a few episodes ago with um, a doctor and uh, a, a, a judge, Judge Aquilina, who was on the um, – the abuse, the gymnast abuse case. Larry Nassar. Yep. <laughs> I don't like to give, I don't like to give them a name, you know, so I don't, I don't usually like say that out loud. And um, it was a fascinating conversation about the world of sports and abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, uh, emotional abuse. And I would love to ask you from your perspective, with all of this going on, with this abuse going on constantly and chronically, how do those athletes continue to perform at that peak level? It's actually a typical presentation in abuse victims. It's what I did as an abuse victim. So what you do is you dissociate. You become mm -hmm. two or more people, essentially. On the one hand, and this is what I did personally, I'm speaking from lived experience, and this is backed by extensive research. I became a perfect performer in the world. I was doing, I passed my, I did a double honors Bachelor of Arts. I was accepted into Harvard. I chose to go to University of Toronto. I did my master's there. I did my PhD. I passed my exams with distinction. My dissertation became my first book published in uh, Florida University Press, blah, blah, blah. I was mm -hmm. a superstar. That was one persona. That's like the gymnast who's doing her leaps and twirls. And, and I loved literature. I loved teaching. I loved everything about my work that I was doing in academics. 
But when I went home and I closed the door, you would have seen a different person. You would have seen somebody who was mentally ill, who had a severe eating disorder, who was so ill with anorexia that she, you know, almost destroyed my own body, almost made it impossible for myself to have children. You would have seen a woman who was taking a knife and cutting her own arms. Mm -hmm. Dissociation, two different people. I didn't exist. I didn't know who that was. That was behind closed doors. And I was overperforming to compensate for the abused, abused girl who had been sexually and emotionally and physically abused for four years by teachers. I, I w- that was a person full of self-loathing, full of numbness, full of so much just kind of madness, basically. I don't even know how to describe it. And I existed like that ever since mm-hmm. the grooming began for me at 13. I became two different people. It, inhabit in one body. And Annette, what I want you to now see is think back to the teachers I was telling you about. Those teachers were two different people. When they were my colleagues, when they were working with other adults, they were charming, lovely, smart, charismatic, hardworking, behind closed doors, they were different people. So I manifested the abuse done to me. My brain coped with it through freeze slash flight. I was not mm-hmm. aggressive to anyone but myself. I hurt myself all the time. That's, that's, I took the abuse and I turned it inward. The abuse of individuals that I described to you, those teachers that were daily bullying in terrible ways, their students, mm-hmm. they were in fight mode. So go back to the sympathetic nervous system. It's a natural brain response to abuse. So my guess is, and I don't have proof of this, my guess is those teachers were once abuse victims. And the way that they are manifesting it is to be stuck. It's like a needle stuck in a record. They're stuck. Mm-hmm. And Larry Nassar, same thing. If you read about Larry Nassar, the abuser, or Harvey Weinstein, or Jerry Sandusky, they all do, they're, they're people that have disappeared as human beings. They've become caricatures. They say the same things. They do the same things. They wear the same clothes. They go to the same hotels. It's like they're in a play and they're just repeating their lines over and over. They are no longer interacting human to human with other people. They've become just a shell of a human being. And that's what abuse does to the brain. Incredible. Okay. Let's move forward into some of the hopeful things that you've discovered. And let's talk about two things. First, you've done so much work on you know, spotting the signs and everything. And this um, episode that I did a few, few episodes ago was um, this um, doctor had done, started a program called spot a spider and it's phenomenal. Um, And you're talking about some of the same things. So I want to talk about that. How do you spot your spider? How do you, you know, spot the abuse as it, as the grooming's going on, as things are happening. Um, And you have some great, and very affordable um, programs, learn on your own um, courses that people can take so that they can really educate themselves and familiarize themselves with these topics. And then the next thing we want to talk about how recovery happens and how do we do that rewiring of the brain so that we can live healthy, happy, you know, robust lives and stop the cycle. I think the key Um, the key lies in education. And I probably say that because I'm an educator, but I truly believe that if we gave children 
the vocabulary and the knowledge, just like we do with sex education. If we gave them the knowledge about brain health education and how terribly impacted they are by abuse and what to watch for, what are the signs of abusive behavior? What are the signs of emotional abuse? What are the signs of sexual grooming or child luring? What are the signs of physical abuse? And gave them the correct vocabulary to report and also ensured that wherever they went, there was a very robust reporting system. And it was made constantly foregrounded in front of children and their parents, who to speak to, how to fill in a report, what would happen, what the next steps would be. These are the missing pieces that we should have in any organization that, that works with children. So to give you an example of where I personally went wrong, my son came home to me as a 16-year-old and he said, those guys are freaks, talking about his teachers. I heard that as teenage language. Those guys are freaks. Like I, if he'd come home and said to me, I am being physically and emotionally abused. These are the behaviors that the teachers are doing in tandem um, to me and other boys that they are targeting. I would have been had a very different response. Yeah. But these guys are freaks. Didn't, didn't work for me. I didn't clue in. And I really feel strongly that I don't want other parents to make the mistake that I did. Kids will float because they don't really know. They've been on the planet for such a limited amount of time. We teach them nothing about abuse. We don't yeah. tell them that a very small portion of the adult population is deadly. They are untrustworthy. They're exploitative. They're destructive. You need to know exactly who they are. And they will, they will trick you. They will appear as your best friend. They will appear as the person giving you all kinds of privileges. Don't fall for it. And parents don't fall for it. Mm -hmm. But we don't tell our kids that. We hand our kids over to abusive individuals on silver platter every single time. We, they, they groom us. They groom the parents. They groom the higher-ups. They are yeah. very adept at, at doing what they do. They're, mm -hmm. It's extremely orchestrated. So I think we really need to have those tough conversations with kids, not once a year. I mean, just like with soccer skills or math or music, it's got to be pretty much every day or two. That's how the brain learns. It learns by making mistakes and it learns by repetition at timed intervals. So if we sure. really are in a brain-centered world, we need to start working so that the brain never forgets what abuse is. So mm -hmm. that would be my, you know, watching for, for red flags. Well, if your kids don't know the red flags, they can't report the red flags to you and you're not going to have a shared vocabulary to know exactly you know, what's going on. And that's, I think, the missing piece. Okay, the shared vocabulary. That's very good. So what are some of the red flags? Well, to use my son again as an example for, he was emotionally and physically abused. Well, the grooming began the year before where the teacher made a big deal of spending quality time with him, just one-on-one, -on -one, them together. They, he was so fun, such a great friend. And then all of a sudden, once he was actually had him, everything changed. And our son was so confused. I'll give you an example from my own childhood. I, my, the grooming began in science class as I was being essentially sex trafficked into an outdoor education program run by pedophiles. And the teacher that was the science teacher who began the grooming, he ultimately joined that pedophile group. So there was three pedophiles. Um, operating this program. They've ultimately blew up in court and so on down the road. But anyway, my first true inkling that there was something wrong, but I was 13. I was a terrible student in science. 
I was really mm-hmm. good at languages, really good at literature, and really bad at math and science. And I, you know, every test I wrote was a struggle for me. I just not, my brain doesn't work that way. Yeah. And he gave me an A. And I thought, I, I didn't get an A. And so I, I took my report card up to him and said, I don't understand why I have an A here. I've never, ever scored an A on any test or anything. And I actually don't remember what he said in reply. But that was the first, like, you know, you, I'll give you things. I'm going to give you gifts and privileges and my, my time and special attention, all the things that insecure kids crave as you're, mm-hmm. as you're growing up in those awkward adolescent years. Well, at the same time, reinforcing how much control they have over your life, you know, exactly. reinforcing their authority. So I can make up your grade no matter what you wrote on this test. Exactly. That's such a good me. point. Such a good point. I never thought of it that way. It is, it yeah. is an absolutely just bright example of their power. That's so true. So um, if your kid comes home and says something to you like, these teachers are freaks, the first thing we need to do is just ask for more information. Right. I mean, you're saying that we get it. We've got to, if, if we haven't been thoughtful enough to start the education process early with our kids and someone comes home and says X, Y, Z, then, Oh, well, tell me more about that. Why do you think that, you know, in a curious way, but not, um, and I'm gleaning all of this from Jennifer. Don't think I made any of this up myself, guys. <laughs> this is all Jennifer stuff. <laughs> but um, I know for myself, I also, um, you know, I wrote about some abuse of my daughter, Caroline, in my book, too. And I missed all the signs. And I, you know, will probably forever until the day I lay my head down and die, feel horrific about missing all that. Um, But there were definitely things that she said to me, even as a little kid that I just, I don't know why it didn't register as something that I should have asked more about, you know? You know, I feel exactly the same way, that terrible mother's guilt. But you know what, I've just recently finished a book called Blind to Betrayal. And what the brain does is it helps you survive in the world by not seeing everyone as a threat, by assuming goodness in other people. And actually, when you have any kind of dependence on someone, it's natural to put up you know, blinders in order to not have the cognitive dissonance of the fact that this teacher that has power and control and authority and even you know, can, can make or break your child, you don't want to hear that they don't have your child's best interests at heart. That mm-hmm. is, the brain would revolt. And, and so you can understand, this is how, you know, in families where abuse is occurring from one parent to the children and the other parent seems like they're blind to it, the, from a brain point of view, it's understandable. It's, you know, you have to let yourself off the hook to a certain degree. Plus, going back uh, to what we said before, we live in a society of normalized abuse. Yeah. You know, you turn on the television, you listen to politicians or leaders or whatever. We have a problem with rampant, normalized abuse. 
Sure. So, I mean, civility is completely gone um, everywhere to the point where you see somebody like Will Smith walk up on stage and slap somebody in the face. Right. Yeah. And you and know, that's, you had, and it was mixed. Some people defended him. Yeah. Some people said there should be no consequences for that. It's really strange. I, I think that was, you know, one episode that just threw me for a loop. What kind of example are we setting for kids and adults alike when that is just okay? Yeah, there was, I, I don't even remember if I, I put this in my, the book before the bully brain, which is a book called Teaching Bullies. And I talked about how um, Pundit and Coulter called Barack Obama a retard. And, and people really responded intensely to it saying, how dare you try and pass that kind of language off as, as political invective or something. When we have children who are taking their lives because they're being bullied so badly and it's doing yeah. so much harm to their brains, True. you yes. don't have the right to ever use language like that. I thought yes. it was powerful. And, you know, um, very distressing statistic, but it's also typical American courage because we don't have these statistics right now in Canada, but from they have just realized and tracked from 2000 to 2018 in America, youth suicide, that's 10-year-olds to 24-year-olds, has increased 57%. And that is the biggest red flag out there that we are doing something wrong. We are not building children who have grit resilience. We're not, we're not creating happy, joyful, playful, empathic, compassionate, loving kids. We're not role modeling that to them and they're not reflecting it back. And we yeah. need to press reset in a really big way in society across the globe to change yeah. that. And I believe the brain science is the way to do it. Mm. I really do. Because oh, that's going so back to, Well, and going back to what you asked about before, there are ways to change our brains. If we are someone who's bullying, we're actually damaging our own brain at the same time as we're hurting our victim so that we become a caricature. We can become a Larry Nassar, can become right. a Harvey Weinstein quicker than you even know. You repeat those default behaviors, you start to become them. You sh you're shaping your brain to be that person that has no empathy, that sees everyone as prey and you're a social predator. So it's... Uh, it, I hate to think that, you know, I really do. Oh, it's goosebumpy. Um, so let's talk about the hopeful stuff, though. If you are someone who has suffered and you are now in your healing phase, what do we do to work on our brain to rewire it back to where it should be? Let's go back to Will Smith. What Will Smith demonstrated in that moment was an individual threatened his family, insulted his wife, and therefore threatened Will Smith. Will Smith's response was fight. He just hit him in the face. That's a very unregulated, uh, mindless, you might argue brainless response. That is mm -hmm. somebody who has predicted from the past, a threat is occurring. It's, it's threatening me and my whole family. I'll use physical uh, aggression to stop the threat. And our, you know, we tend to think that our brains are responding to triggers in the environment, and that's actually not the case. 
our brain predicts our reality based on the past. Okay. So if you have an abusive, that's really good, Jennifer, that is really good. If you come from an abusive past, you have to work double time to tell your brain. So in the book, I have all these activation steps and the steps are designed to get you to see your brain. So when I do mindfulness with, with, when I coach people and so on, or I do a talk in front of people, I get them to close their eyes and visualize their brain and then get into the habit of starting to work with their brain. So using mindfulness, a very much a research backed uh, technique for brain health, use your mindfulness very specifically. You visualize your brain and you tell it that you're in charge. You thank it. Thank you, brain. I love the fact that you are just this superpower in my skull, but here's the deal. You're the engine. And the mind is always in the driver's seat. So I'm Will Smith. I go up. This guy threatens my wife and insults her and my family. And I, I turn to my brain and I go, I've got this. I'm going to mindfully respond and say, that was hurtful. Please don't ever speak about my wife that way. She cannot help her condition. I don't like to see you be cruel to her. It's the mm-hmm. mindful response. And it's not, you're telling the brain, stand down. You're not in danger. I got this. And the Mm. more we start talking to our mind and saying these things, the more we bring down the sympathetic nervous system that has us all ramped up, that has Mm -hmm. us pumping full of cortisol, which we know is hurting both our brain and body. We can, by being mindful, bring that completely down, slow the heart rate, everything. And um, neuroscientists refer to the parasympathetic phase when you told the brain it's completely safe, it can do all its wonderful problem solving and creativity, innovation, mm-hmm. social, emotional connection. When the brain's doing all of that, it's because you've told it by deep breathing. You don't deep breathe if you're face to face with a predator. You do short, shallow breathing. Yeah. Right? So as soon as you start doing that slow, deep breathing, your brain's like, oh, this is rest and digest. She's sitting in a cave by a fire with her clan and she's totally safe. I can think about other things now. I don't have to savor. And you want your brain to be in that healthy state as much as possible, except when there is a real threat. When there is a real threat in your life's on the line, you sure want that sympathetic nervous system to do its magic, to get you out of there. But not when you're at the Academy Awards in front of millions of viewers. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the hard part for all of us is to recognize when we need to practice that mindfulness and take that breath. And, you know, just take a moment and calm our brain down. So how do we do that? How do we catch ourselves before that impulsivity kicks in? Well, I think the best analogy for this is physical exercise. So if I sit on the couch and watch TV all day long, and then you ask me to come out and go running with you or biking or play soccer. I'm, I fumble. I'm awkward. I'm fumbling. I'm not very, I can't do it. I don't have physical literacy. It's not right there for me. Same thing with mindfulness and brain work. It is like exercise. It's like exercising a muscle. So mm-hmm. if you think of the brain like a muscle, you can have it sitting watching Netflix all day long and not practicing anything that's good for its health and strength and flexibility, or you can daily put in your time, bless you, you can daily put in your time to exercise your brain, make it flexible, make it mindful, make it calm, make it something that you rule that does not ever rule over you, yeah. right? you got to keep yeah. your brain and its survival impulses in check. 
And that's by having a good relationship with it. But that requires daily practice, just like fitness. The more you daily practice fitness, when you get called to come out and play football, throw a ball or whatever, you've got the physical literacy to do it. Same mm. thing with mindfulness. That's fascinating. And I love that you don't just stop in the education system or in you know youth sports, talking about stuff in the workplace, stuff out in the community. It's everywhere. And that's just so significant. I mean, I personally have been bullied at work. I think a lot of us have experienced those sorts of things. And, you know, never having learned those tools as a kid of how to, I mean, I did just what you did, put my head down, I just need to get through the day. How do I just get through the day? And, you know, all of all of those steps that you were talking about, like, the, I think the significant aha moment for me was I finally looked up. I finally looked up. I mean, it seems so simple. And somebody asked me, so what are your goals? You know, what are you, what are you working towards? What are your, what's your vision? And I thought, I don't know. I don't, I'm so busy every day just trying to like survive and be small that I can't, even think about tomorrow or next week or next year. And um, I, I am just really hearing what you're saying, you know? So I think a lot of us are in that space. So what is so brilliant about what you just described from a brain point of view is your prefrontal cortex, that's the final part of the brain to become mature around 24, 25. That's why teenagers are teenagers. They don't have mature prefrontal cortexes. That's mm -hmm. the part of the brain that looks to the future. It's, it's described as the CEO of the brain. It thinks about consequences. It weighs pros and cons. It's very mm -hmm. sage and reasonable and rational, essentially. Now, I just want to say a quick thing to the side for the neuroscientists out there. I know you're not supposed to like focus on parts of the brain, but for us lay people, we need to, in order to be able to talk about it and understand, we don't have the deep science that they do. Right. The brain actually operates always as a whole. It's this incredible electrical chemical network. It's just incredible what it does. But for the sake of our conversation and for what you just said, you weren't really in your prefrontal cortex in your life because you were very much in survival mode. So you were in the, the brain regions, the sympathetic nervous system. You were being like a creature, staying very, very still. Your amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's about threat response, it was on high alert. It was looking mm -hmm. for the next attack. It was hoping it wouldn't come on you. You weren't going to be humiliated or harmed or have an opportunity taken away. So your amygdala was getting all the energy. And while it's getting all the energy and you're developing hypervigilance, think about kids that come from abusive homes or schools mm -hmm. or sport programs, they, they're looking for malevolence in the world. They don't feel calm or confident or excited about the future. They're yeah. trying to survive. I mean, as my son put it, he said, I set myself one goal. And this kid's an elite athlete. What was the elite athlete's goal in grade 11 when he was, should be preparing to play college sports? His goal was not to let them break me. I was like, oh, yeah. And that's what you do when you're being bullied at work. You put that your hearts my heart. I know. Me too. Mm -hmm. It's just, it is heartbreaking. And what also breaks my heart is the people doing it to him probably were treated to that kind of 
horrible yeah. abuse too, or they wouldn't be behaving that way. It's and a they think this is the only way to do it. Well, I mean, really what fascinated me in the, in the book yeah. was all the research revealed to me that we believe as a society on a deep, deep level that we don't like to look at, but we do believe it's a myth that abuse is a necessary evil for greatness. And it's why we tolerate it. And so when we see powerful, prestigious people in our world who daily, without any kind of impunity, uh, manifest extremely bullying behaviors, we're like, yeah, well, of course. When you act that way, everybody's scared of you. When you act that way and all the power gloms onto you, of course, people will do your bidding. You know, these yeah. kinds of things, these cycles, we need to, we need to break them. We are starting. I, this is the hopeful part of me. I think very slowly we're starting to really um, make people accountable for their actions. Now, I'm not a big fan of cancel culture, you know, where people make one mistake or say something that's unpopular and all of a sudden everybody's canceling them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Nassers of the world, right? And people who are abusive to their employees and things like that. But, you know, I'm analogizing this to, and of course, I'm running long. Of course, I always do. But I'm analogizing this to a lot of us in the disability community raising special kids. Um, our life is full of crisis every day. And it is really hard to get out of that survival mode daily battle. And it sounds like the same types of things are happening in our brain that you're talking about with bullying. When your kid is like at any minute turning blue and heading off to the ER or, you know, your, um, your child is um, very behavioral. And, you know, I met a woman one time whose son had broken like dozens of her bones over a few years period. And she couldn't get anybody to help her in our community, you know, the agencies weren't responding. And I mean, when you live like that, and that's not purposeful bullying, that's autism in this case, it, it still, it still must be impacting your brain. I know when I was raising my daughter, Elizabeth, and she was so sick and it was just always something always, you know, I think that's where I was, getting small and just trying to breathe and get through this day to the next day and the next day. Do you feel that that analogy is, is fair? I think it's very fair. Um, it's exactly the same thing. You know, when you have a child with special needs or chronic illness or chronic pain or, you know, a condition like autism, um, in a sense, they are being almost bullied within their own selves and you can't save them and you can't protect them. And you're incredibly dependent on the medical community um, for their uh, knowledge and they make mistakes. And you can't be angry when they make mistakes because you are utterly and completely dependent on them. They are the, you know, they stand between your child's death, even potentially and you. Um, and so I speak uh, from experience because my second son, the one who wasn't abused, has a uh, syndrome, which is a very rare genetic 
condition that happens in utero and they don't know why is a spinal fusion. Mm. And what you describe um, is my life. So every single day, in fact, because I write for therapy, I write to publish books and like share knowledge, <laughs> but I also write for my own brain. And actually, I highly recommend it to your listeners. If you have a special needs child and you live that unholy tough life and you would you'd lie yourself down on the railway tracks for that kid, but yeah. you still can't stop their pain and you can't stop the next medical intervention or surgery. Like I live that world. Um, it's very therapeutic to write about it. So mm -hmm. I ended up writing this whole collection of poems and it's called death stalks my child. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's kind of like a battle mantra of, you know, death is out there and I know it. And, He's not coming anywhere near my kid. I will do whatever it takes. And, and it's, it's like unpacking the different ways in which death tries to get your kid from you and what you have to do to protect them. Mm -hmm. And it requires, it requires like battle regalia and tapping into your ancestors and being wily. And, you know, and nice. it, gave me, it gave me a lot of therapy to write about it. And it changed how my son saw himself. It really did. So, you wow, know, that's cool. Yeah. So I just send that out there into the world of chronic illness and disability and kids. Just, you know, you, you have to be proud of yourself and you have to be proud mm -hmm. of your brain. Your brain is always trying to protect you. So if you can just talk to it and say, you know what, it's going to be a sleepless night. I got this. Uh, we need to stay calm. The more calm we stay, the more fit we stay, the better nutrition we have, the mm -hmm. stronger we're going to be to keep this kid that we love. Okay. And we can do it. Like the brain's amazing. Look at you. Look wow. at all the parents that listen to your, your podcast who are there because they are still working and learning and trying to do the best they can after being given a, a pretty hard, you know, hand of cards. I so resonate with that. My, my book about my daughter and our life together started out as a journal and then turned into a book. So I totally resonate with that. It was very therapeutic for me, yeah. for sure. And I still write for therapy. Um, so I understand you're up, you're shortlisted for an award for your poetry. Is that right? <laughs> well, I, um, those poems, actually, I haven't shared the poems about my son. They're just so raw and personal. Mm -hmm. I have had some success with three poems. One poem was long listed for a, an Australian prize. One poem made the finalist list. So it's getting published with a group of finalists in an international Montreal poetry prize. And then the third one, um, I can't say, yeah, it comes out on the 22nd, the announcement, but it's a British literary prize. Um, and it's shortlisted for that, a different poem. That's three different poems, but they're all nice. poems. They're all about the brain. So Fantastic. your listeners, your listeners must just be like, this lady is crazy. <laughs> She's crazy obsessed with the human brain. But honestly, the brain is so fascinating. It's been, I, I encourage everyone. It's so interesting to learn about the brain. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a, a powerful, empowering thing. How much you can do yourself with your neuroplasticity. You are the sculptor of your brain. You shape it by what you practice and the, and the environments you allow it to be in. And, and another way to think of it is you're the architect of your own existence. You and the brain together, pretty unstoppable. Definitely. Well, listeners, you need to check out Jennifer's website, bulliedbrain.com, and see all the things that she's doing. So besides writing four books and all kinds of other things like poetry, she's also a coach. She does, you know, speaking engagements. Um, what else are you doing? 
Have I missed I anything? No, I do. Well, I do educational consulting with groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly coaching uh, when people want that one-on-one and then writing and research. Yeah, I mean, my dream is to get the science into everyone's hands. So, you know, cool. People, cool. I yeah. like that I'm not talking to a scientist because mm-hmm. I can actually understand what you're saying. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm like the nice mom. I'm the mom who tells you about neuroscience. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate that perspective. I, I am so grateful that you have come on the show. I really am so fascinated by all of this and, and I've really enjoyed learning so much from you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Annette, for having me. It was lovely to speak with you. Thank you. So have a good evening and we will catch you on the flip side. Okay, audience. Now I want you to go check out thebulliedbrain.com and also you've got to get her book. It's really easy and flows and you will, I promise you, you will learn some things. It's great. You're going to learn about yourself, your kids, your community, and how all of these things connect to each other and then to your brain. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.